This podcast is brought to you by Story King Books. Sign up now and get a free copy of my latest ebook, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. The link will be in the show notes. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, a show featuring inspirational conversations about the art and business of storytelling and living life. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is author and professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California, Natalia Molina. Natalia's research explores the intertwined histories of race, place, gender, culture, and citizenship. She is the author of the award-winning books, How Race is Made in America, Immigration, Citizenship, and the Historical Power of Racial Scripts, and Fit to be a Citizen, Public Health and Race in Los Angeles, 1879-1940. to Her most recent book is A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community. In addition to publishing widely in scholarly journals, she has also written for the LA Times, Washington Post, San Diego Union Tribune, and more. She is also a 2020 MacArthur Fellow. Here is my conversation with Natalia Molina. Natalia Molina, welcome to the Story King podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll we'll start off by hearing a little bit about your story, who you are, what you do, shortened version, of course. I am a third generation Angelino uh, from the area of Echo Park, so third generation Echo Parkian. And I've always been interested in how that area came to be, why it looked different than the rest of LA, why it looked different than the LA that was depicted in the media, in movies, on television. You know, I grew up watching I Love Lucy. And um, that's actually how I learned to speak English. <laughs> I was a Spanish, uh, we had a Spanish speaking household. And as I went to college and picked a major, I picked history. And as early as my senior thesis, I wrote about why LA looks the way that it does. So went on to graduate school, got a PhD. I'm now a historian. I am a professor at USC in the American Studies and Ethnicity program. And I'm interested in why cities look the way they do, why we think about race the way that we do, um, particularly around Latino immigrants. I see. You know, my I have three boys and they watch I Love Lucy every single day. Raising so, those kids right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you learn to speak English watching that show. That's 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 interesting. I got sick for a while. I was out of school, so I watched it over and over. I was a default kind of babysitter, default friend as I was sick, and it was enough to make me learn English. <laughs> so were you born here or were you born somewhere else or I was born here, I'm third generation, but everybody in our family speaks Spanish. And because we have continued to have people immigrate, then it's kind of necessary to speak Spanish. Um, We also go to Mexico. And if you know anything about the way that Mexican culture and the way Mexicans speak Spanish, they love a turn of phrase. They love a double entendre. They're very clever with language. So it's not only necessary, to communicate. It's necessary to experience the culture and just really live your life fully. I know Spanish, but I just love speaking Spanish. And I love that it affords me to be not just bilingual, but bicultural. Gotcha. Now, a lot of your work 
revolves around immigration. Immigration has always been an important subject for me as well. I come from a family of immigrants, uh, including my father. He's Italian, but he's actually a Mexican citizen because he was born in Mexico at the time. And uh, what, when and why did you start to heavily focus your research on immigration? What, why is that important for you? I think it's similar to like when we when I was mentioning talking about Los Angeles, like how is it that I experienced Los Angeles in this very diverse, classed, uh, immigrant LA, and yet when I see it depicted, it's not that way. And same thing with immigration. Um, I think when we look at immigrant stories in the news, there's a lot of demonization of immigrants. There's a lot of you know, not really understanding the ways in which laws shape immigration, the ways that laws shape our ideas about race, and then who can immigrate under what conditions and how that changes over time. And so I really wanted to get at that complexity so that we could also get at the complexity of immigrant lives and look at them in three dimensions instead of just one dimension. And I'm not familiar with the area Echo Park, so but you, you keep talking about that there's a disparity between how it actually is and how it's depicted. So what area of LA is Echo Park? So Echo Park is northwest of downtown LA. It is traditionally a, a diverse working class area. Those always attracted people on the margins. So artists, bohemians, hippies, socialists, communists, immigrants, uh, originally a lot of uh, white immigrants, you know, people that we think about, about as white now, but that were European immigrants, like your dad, mm -hmm. uh, people like your dad could have settled there, right? There were people that came uh, through Korea, then Cuba, then Mexico, um, immigrants from Mexico, immigrants or you know, migrants from the Philippines. So people from all over. And it's an area that is now in the news more because it's you know rapidly gentrifying area. So it now has bars and microboot pubs and you know Starbucks coffee and all of that. But uh, it's always been a really diverse area. And I think when we and you know, Sunset Boulevard runs through it. But mm -hmm. usually when we think of Sunset and we think of LA, we think of West Los Angeles. And we don't think of LA with all of that diversity built in. I see. And let's talk about the book, A, a Place at the Nayarit. Is that, did I pronounce that correct? Yes. Yes. I did. Okay. <laughs> so I understand that was a, a, about a restaurant your grandmother started. Is that correct? Yes. And actually, it's great that you even said, did I pronounce it correctly? Because it's named the Nayarit after her home state in Mexico. Mm. And it became one of the these ways in which she and others at the restaurant connected with their customers who weren't Mexican, where people would come in and say, what's the Nayarit? Did I pronounce that correctly? <laughs> and it just became this natural launching pad to talk about, I'm from here. I'm from this part of Mexico. This is what it's like. And it starts to kind of break down and diversify people's ideas of Mexico. And then she in turn got to ask them, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Lithuania. I'm from Germany. I'm from Italy. And I have the, the deli down the street. So, you know, the restaurant was in this neighborhood, but it was also part of this larger immigrant network. So that area was always like a bohemian artsy type of area, even when your grandmother started the restaurant? Yes. And what's okay. interesting to me about that she started it there is that, you know, she was a Mexican immigrant. She was the first one in our family to immigrate. 
and she only spoke Spanish. And she could have settled in East Los Angeles where there were you know, a lot more Spanish speaking immigrants. And instead she chose Echo Park. And you know, she was able to connect to immigrants from Hungary, from France, from Italy, who all had their own businesses around there. Uh, and she also relied on what I call cultural brokers, people that not just translated for her, but translated the culture for her, translated business transactions for her. She always had a lawyer and she always had a real estate agent. And they were the ones that really helped her understand how to buy property, how to rent property, um, how to help settle her family when they came from Mexico, how to write a uh, sponsorship letter so that when people wanted to immigrate from Mexico, they could more easily get their visa because they could go to the consulate and show, look, I have an aunt who lives in LA and she has a business and she will hire me if I go there. So she really used that business as a way to bring people into, uh, to have them immigrate to the US, but then also bring them into the fold. Right. And it sounds like she kind of created a network for herself where she was able to help them. They were able to help her in different in different ways. Yes, absolutely. Um, she made sure that they learned to speak English, even though she didn't speak English. They went to you know the, the English speaking school. Uh, the nieces, her nieces that were educated in the U.S., also wrote letters on her behalf. They you know did her correspondence. So everybody kind of had a job, even outside of the restaurant. Did you personally know your grandmother, or was this all researched? Yes, I, I didn't know her. So I, you know, I grew up hearing these stories about her. And even more so, I grew up, you know, benefiting from the network she established. She established networks with our family, but also what I call uh, what anthropologists have called fictive kin. So, you know, people would live in our home and people would work in a restaurant and they'd know her for decades. So they'd call her aunt. And so my mom would, you know, when I was born, even though my grandmother had passed, she would say, this is your, this is now your, your, you know, I think of them like a cousin. So they're your aunt or uncle. And, you know, we often think about that kind of fictive kin emerging from, uh, from like religious ceremonies, uh, compadrasco, you know, this idea of, you know, godparents, your comadre, your compadre. But in our case, it's a kinship based on place. It's place of where we came from in Mexico, but it's place in terms of where we settled in Los Angeles and our connection to Echo Park. Now, in the description of your book, it says the restaurant, not only a safe place for immigrants, but even Hollywood stars would go there sometimes. Do you, do you know of any of those stars uh, who, who actually went there? What was exciting about the restaurant was that it wasn't in an ethnic enclave. It was an Echo Park, which was a cultural crossroads, but it was also a geographic crossroads. If you go a couple miles west, you know, there's Hollywood. If you go a couple miles, uh, you know, more towards the city center, there's downtown L.A. So the restaurant was positioned between L.A. landmarks like, you know, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, the Hollywood Palladium, the Ambassador Hotel, the Macombo Club. And it was open till four in the morning. So when musicians ended their sets, it could have been at a small local place like Virginia's or it could have been somewhere like the Hollywood Palladium and you might have the band leader Tito Puente come, Xavier Cougart. Wow. Uh, there was a theater downtown called the Million Dollar Theater where different groups went through. And many of them were Spanish speaking groups. So mariachi groups, singers from Spain, famous Mexican singers. 
And the MC had a local radio show as well. And so when he would MC, when he would do the radio show, he would often do ads for my grandmother's restaurant that she paid for. But when he emceed, he would just talk about where he was going to go eat afterwards. And he'd say, oh, I can't wait to have those mancha mantelas costillas, these tablecloth staining ribs that they have at the Nayarit. I hope you'll join me. So then people from the Million Dollar Theater would go there. And my grandmother would have the employees uh, put flyers on people's cars. Mm. So you finish a dance and you'd come out to your car and there was a flyer and you're thinking, oh, I need to make sure that I kind of work off this hangover, work off this bus. <laughs> I got to go get some Mexican menudo, which is famous for, you know, for curing hangover ills. So she always had a way of figuring out how to tap into that industry. And, you know, movie stars, uh, Rita Moreno, who used to date Marlon Brando, she would go with Marlon Brando, Marlon Brando would go, Marlon Brando would ask my aunt out on a date, and <laughs> grandmother would say, no, Marlon, I don't think so, you don't get to take her out, she's 17. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Marlon Brando, Tito Puente, I mean, I mean, it's quite an accomplishment that she was able to create this atmosphere where all these different people could frequent, you know, but it also sounds like it was perfectly geographically situated for that to even be possible? You know, I've thought about it a lot since starting the book. You know, every time I go to a restaurant, I think what what makes it special and what makes me not want to come back? And she she was very fortunate that she had the location. Uh, she started the restaurant after World War II. So she had all that World War II prosperity. She had tried to open one earlier, uh, but during the depression it closed. But she also had my mom. And so my grandmother, their, their skill set was just perfectly matched. So my grandmother was a very exacting, reserved person that was all about the business and all about the back of house, making sure that the food was perfectly cooked, perfect temperature. And she would sit on a stool in between the kitchen and the dining room and make sure that every dish that came out looked perfect, was the right temperature and that people were getting their meals in a timely manner and the tables were being turned over in a timely manner. And my mother is all about front of house. So she's the type that will remember your name, remember your children's name, that you celebrated your birthday there last year and yet you've come back again. And if you started the night at the Nayari with one date, but ended the night at the Nayeri with another date, then she would pretend she didn't know you at all. <laughs> so, you know, she knew exactly uh, how to treat people. And that winning combination, I think, is what helped give that restaurant the longevity and the special feature that people, everybody, uh, both in the U.S. and Mexico, wanted to go to. Because even people from Mexico would go to the restaurant. My grandmother advertised in her hometown paper and people that I interviewed in Mexico said, oh yeah, if you went to LA and you don't, you didn't go to the Nayari, it was like, you didn't go to LA. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like she was super savvy with business, putting flyers outside of clubs and, you know, just the way she ran everything. Like, it sounds like she was really intentional with, with everything. She was very intentional with how she ran the business and she was intentional with the profits. So she also donated to civic organizations in her hometown. Mm. She donated to the church. She would hold raffles at the restaurant so that um, she could raise money 
for the church back home. And she used the restaurant as a way, as we've talked about, to bring other family members, fictive kin over to give them opportunities. So it was also about the way that people work together. And so once people were here, since she had given them a head start, they might give other people a head start. You know, yeah, you can sleep on my couch for a few months. Yes, you know, we can, um, I can give you a ride to the English language school. So it was also the way that these networks uh, really helped the entire community. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a book about belonging, you know, immigrants who by definition are, are sort of in a place, they don't feel like they necessarily belong. And your grandmother did what she could to kind of change that environment for them. Exactly. I think that when we do see Latinos depicted on television and movies, they're still often in service positions. They're the ones that are, you know, working in the restaurant or a busboy or a housekeeper. But I was really interested in, I knew all those people too. I'm not saying that that's, you know, incorrect. But I also know that once they leave that housekeeping job on Sunday, they might want to take the day off from cooking and cleaning and go to a restaurant and be the ones that are waited on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that that bartender, because my dad was a bartender, <laughs> I know that that bartender might leave his job and go get a beer himself and maybe even sing with the, the trio. So instead of being that person that waits on you, he's now the guy with the great voice singing with the trio. You know, so I really wanted to show like, these are people who live three dimensional lives. And they're not always on the margins. They're not always laborers. They're also people who fall in love fight, uh, celebrate baptisms, and, you know, have Sunday meals with their family. Did your grandmother have this sense of accomplishing the American dream? Because essentially she did, you know, she was she was born in Mexico herself. Yes. So, you know, or was the restaurant sort of out of pure necessity to start because that's what she was good at? Like, do do you know whether or not she had the sense of uh, accomplishing the American dream? Was that even something she strived for or I don't I can't say for sure but what I can say is that whatever she accomplished she wanted more and she wanted more for others so she bought a home when she opened the restaurant in Echo Park and they could walk to the business from there so everything always revolved around the business even when her grandchildren would visit her they would not visit her in their in her home they visited her at the restaurant and my my eldest cousin who knew her, you know, I didn't, said that when they would get to the restaurant, they would look to that uh, counter in the kitchen where she would always put her purse. And if her purse wasn't there, she breathed a little sigh of relief because she was scared of our grandmother. <laughs> right? She was like this very reserved person that they, they would always go see at work and she was on. So she had a home. She had a business. She had the American dream. She could have stopped there. But as I mentioned, she had a real estate agent too. So she also bought a couple little homes in Echo Park, two bedroom, one bath. And when she'd have families from Mexico that she would help immigrate, sometimes the entire family would work at the restaurant. They would rent that home from her. And when they could afford it, they would buy it from her. And, you know, not at a market price, but at, you know, at market value price. And so some of my family members still live in those homes that they bought 50 years ago from my grandmother. It's now the next generation and it'll probably be passed down to the next generation because it's impossible to buy a home in LA anymore. But, you know, that was the way that she made sure that others also had their piece of the American dream. 
Now, you spoke about how immigrants are depicted on television. Did your grandmother, though, have to deal with any type of racism herself? Uh, I mean, it doesn't sound like if she did it, it let her stop or do anything. I think that was another advantage of settling at an Echo Park. She could have settled in East Los Angeles and she would have been confronted with less racism than in other parts of the city. Echo Park is unique in that, unlike other parts of Los Angeles that were subject to residential segregation through things like you know covenants, housing deeds, or even if you don't choose to discriminate about uh, towards someone, it can be written into the deed itself. Like you know, deed, this home cannot be sold to an African American or sundown towns, which were also part of LA County, like places like Glendale where African-Americans were not allowed after sundown. Mm. It, that kind of segregation and racism worked differently for Mexicans. One, sometimes it could pass. Two, you know, it wasn't that kind of absolute racism, but there were parts of LA where, for example, Mexicans could not sit in the main part of the theater. They had to sit in the balcony. They could only go to the public pool on the day before it was drained. And there were other parts of LA where, you know, uh, you actually had neighborhood associations, um, vigilantes who would burn crosses on the homes, uh, on the lawns of people like Nat King Cole when he moved into Hancock Park. Mm -hmm. So luckily she did, not, she did not have to contend with something like that. In terms of how it may have worked on, you know, kind of a daily basis, individual things, those those stories didn't survive in our family. Uh, so they might have happened. And I, I think it's interesting that they didn't. It seems like overall people appreciated the opportunities they were able to have. And if there were other things there, they did not they did not let it stop them. Does the Nayarit still exist? No, my grandmother passed in 69. And my mom kept it for a few years, but then, you know, she got married, she had me, uh, she didn't have her, her other half of her team, my grandmother, who was really the business person. And so she sold the lease to it. And part of what I want to show in the book is that everybody has a place like the Nayeti that they go to, right? Or I hope everybody does. But most people say, oh, I grew up with a place like that, or there's a place like that in my neighborhood now. But, you know, with our society changing, economics, pandemic, gentrification, so many places are at a risk of closing or have closed. And I want the book to be a way for people to think about their own place and how they might historicize it. So, you know, I talk about all my methods that I use to document both the place as well as the city so that people can create their own histories of their own urban anchors. And this is my last question. How can we, the United States, do better on immigration, both politically in terms of legislation, as well as our overall societal attitudes about it? You know, it, how we think about immigration is not black, white. So it's not like I think about it this way and, you know, you'll think about it this way or conservatives and liberals, Democrats or Republicans. I think there's a nuance of way of thinking about it. So one easy way is let's just read more about immigration. Let's read more about what options there are. Let's see what's worked. Uh, you know, if people think guest workers are the answer, well, what guest worker programs have we had before? If people don't know what guest worker programs are, well, then let's read about guest worker programs, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and people often sympathize. Uh, the, one of the areas that people are sympathetic about in terms of immigration is when it affects children. 
Well, then let's look at the Deferred Action you know, uh, uh, Child Act, DACA, and what's going to happen with that. So one thing is just read. So I always say history, knowing your history is an anti-racist practice. We've talked so much about anti-racism in the wake of George Floyd, and so important to do so, especially around Black Lives Matter. But, you know, when we talk about race, we're also talking about immigration. So I think you know, this is another area that if we just read on it and talk to people about it, uh, we'll be in a different place. Very good advice. Natalia, if people wanted to follow you, buy your books, reach out to you, where can they go about doing all that? I'm on Twitter and Instagram on prof underscore Natalia M. And you can just look me up, Natalia Molina, USC, and you will find me. Awesome. I'll make sure your links are in the show notes. Natalia Molina, thank you so much for coming on the Story King podcast and sharing your story with us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So that was my conversation with Natalia Molina. All of her links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to check out storykingbooks.com. Also, if you can follow us on Instagram, the username is storyking.podcast. I post weekly short stories, writing tips, quotes from famous authors. You don't want to miss that. And please click like on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash storykingpodcast. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing with this show, please consider becoming a patron. You could choose a monthly membership tier at www.patreon.com forward slash thestoryking. All those links I just mentioned will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of sharing the show with your friends and on social media, subscribing to it and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Story King podcast, a show about the art and business of storytelling and living life. Please join us next time. Until then.